Hello and welcome then to episode two of uh, the What Just Happened podcast uh, with myself, Will, and my good friend Ali over in Oregon. Uh, we're going to bring you a little bit of a rundown of our, our weekly blog, which we write, which you can find at whatjusthappened.news, uh, in which we have a little bit of a look of some of the stories that have uh, jumped out to us this week as particularly ridiculous or outrageous or not well covered. And uh, we'll, we're going to have a little chat through some of them. And uh, if you want something a bit more formal, check out the blog. Yeah, so as always, links to our sources, some of our slightly different thinking, a lot of it semi-improvised. We try and be thoughtful, but there'll be we're, some we're other stuff. We're making it up. <laughs> if, you, if you think we say something objectionable, or you'd like to know a little bit more, or read, read around it yourself, then we link pretty extensively in the blog, which we can think of as a supporting exercise for all of this. So getting into the first story, titled Remembering Zistazi. The Germans have taken an interesting approach making the French and the English look pretty silly with regards to contact tracing this week in that they've abandoned the centralized approach and have started to pursue a decentralized approach. What does that mean? Well, it's essentially about at what point in the network, at, well, where in the network is the matching being done, i.e. The, the risk assessment that two people have been sufficiently proximate to one another to end up transferring transmitting the virus should one of them have it and yeah the whole thing is wildly wildly complicated there are, there's lots of room for meaningful disagreement on it um i mean it's I, a real danger zone though isn't it privacy wise this whole thing you've got to strike this balance i mean we've spoken about it in a few a few weeks worth of the blog is how how do you balance this how do you balance the need to implement contact tracing reduce the outbreak with the fact that most of us feel really uncomfortable about giving that level of data over to our governments or indeed corporations and and how sensible are they going to be and what sort of approach they're going to take to maintain any sort of level of privacy and how do we come back from all this well so absolutely like that's a really important part of the conversation is specifically in the eu how do you get this app to work without breaching eu standard data protection regulation the general data protection regulation gdpr brought in a few years ago like that, that seems to um, be a significant barrier. Although concerningly, that the mark there a lot of the time is something called pseudonymization. So it's not actually, an, it doesn't actually. The data doesn't need to be anonymous. It just needs to be in in the official language. Just like more difficult. <laughs> it's slightly slightly harder to isolate individuals. Sorry, it's not actually the official language, but it's something I read earlier. And I also feel a little bit weird that this conversation's become about you know, trusting the government with privacy, you know, there's there's this suggestion that Google and Apple are, are trustworthy. And, mm. you know, Google is already being sued in a, very many cases. Well, there's one from a couple of years ago for GDPR for, I think, I think it's seven different European countries are suing, have been suing Google yeah. about using their location tracking, using GPS tracking from their phones, even when they thought it, they had it turned off across other apps. You know, I, mean, like, I mean, as you pointed out, this, this is Google who started cutting the price of Android phones in order to gather more data to make more profit, which is, which is a great point. I mean, it, settling, trusting that company with that level of data and feeling comfortable about it is really, really difficult. But do you trust our governments better? Do you trust Apple better? I mean, it's really, we're really sort of caught, caught between rock and a hard place here. And of course, none of these countries, I mean, I think, I assume none of these countries is going to make these contact tracing apps mandatory. So 
at what point does your responsibility come to trust these in order to start to reduce the outbreak and sort of bring that round? it's so hard to balance it makes me feel so uncomfortable especially i mean in the uk we we just aside what you know germany has been doing in france and everywhere else in the uk we've had an app which has been made in a centralized manner and the whole the whole thing behind it i mean allegedly it's been made by dominic cummings's best mates company who was heavily involved in <laughs> the vote leave process which exactly should give you shudders if you you've read anything to do with the way that they've handled data it's it's just makes you feel uncomfortable allegedly now after discovering that it would break all of our own data laws they're now going back and looking at apple and google's model the idea of having unelected advisors just shady backroom advisors and dominic cummings the would-be eugenicist little creep (laughs) involved in designing (laughs) involved in having a, a an executive say in who's going to be administering these apps is um, pretty, pretty Orwellian. So in addition to the privacy conversation, there's also the conversation about whether or not these apps are actually going to work. Like the right. Apple and Google API itself takes five minutes in between pings. That's plenty of time to make out with someone who has COVID. <laughs> that is more than enough time. And then at any point when the phones are on airplane mode, turned off, or if you just don't take it with you while you go for a run without wearing a mask and lick a load of strangers then that's a load of data which is not being recorded in the app. Yeah, I mean, they, they've said they've said in the in the uh, the trial that they've done of the app in, in the UK and the Isle of Wight, um, they've had to put signs up uh, in red zones, in coronavirus red zones in hospitals to remind all the medical staff to turn off Bluetooth on their phones before they enter because otherwise you're going to get false reports. I mean... The practicality behind this are absolutely mind-boggling. Apart from the fact, I don't, I don't know whether you've read up any more on this. I read somewhere that the the current NHS X app won't work on uh, Apple devices if you don't keep the app open in the foreground. Yeah, that's that's a, just a ba- basically permission settings won't allow it <sighs> to work. The the level of forethought that's gone into this is really it's, scarily lacking. You, we, I feel like we really need to be wary of this waving the magic wand of techno utopianism. Um, and, you know, everyone's so highly specialized in one specific thing, generally speaking, in the 21st century, that any huge problem, they're just like, okay, cool, this is my, solu- this is my way of contributing, this is my solution, this is how we, this is how we resolve this. Uh, an excerpt, the TLDR from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, an amazing organization, by the way, um, learning a little bit about John Perry Barlow's contributions and involvement with them, and the essay on Wired, The Economy of Ideas, that's all just an aside, can't recommend it highly enough, so bloody interesting. Um, their take on this, quote-unquote, proximity tracking apps might be, at most, a small part of a larger public health response to COVID-19. So, Right. We, we should not imagine that when we're implementing this, this is going to be the solution this isn't the silver bullet this is not what's going to get pubs and clubs and restaurants open again is it and we're foolish to try and think that it might be um and in terms of i mean i don't know whether us is up to in terms of um human contact tracing as in the human element but in the uk they've been promising for weeks we're going to have a huge force of tens of thousands of people Eighteen thousand was the initial target and so far we've employed 1500 people it's you know, slow clap moment. <laughs> We're doing really well here. Uh, as we've said, we, you know, it, it probably involves counting those who haven't been hired yet and uh, those who've been hired more than once in order to get to that total. All of those, <sighs> Much all of those weeks and months of 
so many people being out of work and idle and picking up knitting and underwater baking and whatever other bullshit they've been up to. It's such a good opportunity to start testing and ramping up just phone banks, yeah. just networks of people calling people who have decided who've been tested. Yeah. It's so simple. The thing is, you know, so many people right now are furloughed. We're paying, you know, we're paying people 80% of their wage out of taxpayers' money to sit around and do nothing. And there's at least, I think, on the last count, last count, 8 million people in the UK that are furloughed. Um, why can't we use them? They, you know, the vast majority of those will have laptops and internet connections. Why are we not using a workforce that's currently being paid by the government to do nothing, to do the... That, sounds, that sounds like a very doing. sensible idea, Will. It's... I'll expect a drafted policy in the, in the morning. Um... <laughs> this is why we're not in politics, because we have sensible ideas. All right. Well, you know what else is a, is a sensible idea, is the, the Dutch policy of, of finding oneself an, an intimate an intimate partner to uh, spend the lot. I mean, this is how British we are. I couldn't even bring myself to say the Dutch word for what it is. You'll have to read the blog to get that. But, you know, there's it. I, I could not stop <laughs> laughing when I saw this came from the Dutch government, <laughs> the National Institute for Public Health and Environment. It's, it's just brilliant. It's pragmatic, down to earth, gets right to it. If everyone's going to be in isolation for yeah. months, it's probably not wise to be super promiscuous. But, you know, we're animals. So maybe partner up. But it also recognises a little bit of human behaviour. Like people are going to do this anyway, so give people a framework within which to do it. <laughs> I'd highly recommend reading the paragraph in the blog on this. It's very entertainingly worded. <laughs> and the other little bit of news uh, we had coming from a European country was um, was the Polish election, which we spoke about um, a little bit a couple of weeks ago about how basically the the incumbent government were were pretty scared of of pushing this election back because they thought they wouldn't be able to win it if they pushed it back and it was looking like it was going to be impossible to help but you know they decided they were going to push ahead with it anyway and in fact they did sort of push ahead with it in that the election was held but none of the polling stations opened and there was no possibility to actually vote by post or by any other means so they have set a new world record for the lowest turnout ever in an election which was exactly zero percent and from what i'm reading nobody really has an idea about how to do with this now the electoral commission are trying to push to get a new date set um and the 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 opposition party are trying to push for postal voting and the whole thing's a little bit of a mess because technically the election has been held (laughs) it's a really really bizarre story if an election falls in a forest and no one's around to vote, <laughs> is it democracy? Taking us to the taking us to the U.S. with another bizarre perturbation of what might be considered democratic participation. We have the story from the ongoing scandal from Senator Richard Burr, who decided it would be a great idea to sell hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stock in February of 2020, while it's understood he had a lot of information about the extent of the ongoing um, spread of the novel coronavirus, as you know, people in touch and in, in direct touch with intelligence officials tend to be. He had privileged information about all of this and would sell a lot of assets on the, um, or at least there's reason to believe that he was expecting a, a significant market panic. So he sold a lot of assets and the FBI are continuing their investigation into him, and they've actually confiscated his phone at this point, which is <laughs> pretty embarrassing and not a great look for the Republicans while they're 
consistently trying to make this look like a great success. And, you know, in, insider trading is one thing. But I'm, it, well, it, it feeds in. But aside from the insider trading story, it feeds into this whole picture of how aware the Trump administration was of the seriousness of this, that, that senators were busy selling off their stocks whilst pretending that everything was OK. You know, it, it paints this story of what people actually knew and what they were projecting. And, really I mean, and I mean, to take the responsibility away from the unelected advisors, I mean, like, frankly, what on earth are they doing anywhere near the political process? They're not technocrats. Like, Jared Kushner is not a technocrat. He shouldn't be in charge of any of the things that he's in charge of and is arguably responsible for, for many, many deaths. And I'm sure he'll continue to be. Um, but the senators, right? Like, the Republican senators who are actually voted into their positions... And are just complicit in all of this bullshit. Like, why? Where? Where is the other than Mitt Romney? You know, and recently some people buy the Lincoln Project. Where's the? Where's the substantial quality challenge to any of this? Well, where's the integrity? I mean, you know, it's hard for us to comment from the UK, given that <laughs> political integrity in the UK is all but non-existent. But it, it's very hard to... And I can't remember... Um, there's another... There's a, there's a senator's name, and I can't remember her name. And uh, there's another emerging story there, which we haven't actually covered in the blog, but but maybe in one for next week, in that her husband, I believe, is the chair of the U- New York Stock Exchange. And there's some question over whether their trust uh, did a pretty similar thing, which was start to sell off pretty heavily around the February beginning of March time um, and I think that they're basically claiming that oh, well we don't have anything to do with it we don't manage our own investments and you sort of think mm, well it's all a bit questionable isn't it well absolutely I suppose it makes sense if your government is mostly just a business administration so while we're on the just after having alluded to the general failures of the failures of the US state just in case anyone thinks that's too harsh of a comment this past week Médecins Sans Frontières have actually had their first deployment announcement in the United States. They will be adding the US to their roster of ongoing war zones and literal hells on earth across the globe, including Afghanistan and you know numerous other places suffering horrific civil wars or deprivation in other forms. And now they've, ad- they've added New Mexico to that list. So if you're a New Mexican or know anyone who is, Shame. Pure, pure shame. It's a pretty dark continued trend for the European treatment of the of the indigenous, really. Um, and a, an international recognition of the failure to protect the uh, the Navajo because that's where the MS, that's where MSF are going to be focusing their attention. It's going to be on the disproportionate coronavirus outbreak among the indigenous peoples of, of New Mexico and the surrounding native lands um yeah it's it's just it's beyond tragic it's completely horrible it's pretty pretty shocking and horrendous that it's got to that that you have to msf have to roll out in the richest country in the world isn't it you know that something's gone seriously wrong with your management of healthcare. right you have the the largest healthcare spend in the world by an order of magnitude almost and just terrible access to loop it back in with the previous discussion from the from the UK uh, government about the, the great levelling force that is the coronavirus, this idea that, that biological and medical ills are distributed uni- uniformly across all kinds of socioeconomic strata is uh, not true. Well, it's completely outlandish. To, to, to paraphrase 
Charlie Brooker in his recent antiviral wipe, which is definitely something you should guys should watch. Um, <laughs> it's uh, we're all in it together. Just some people are much more in it than other people are, <laughs> and that's that's pretty fair. That's pretty fair if you're active and doing a doing a you know if you're a bin man, uh, you don't really have much choice. You you've got to go to work. You won't get paid if you don't. Yeah, and you're going to come into contact with the detritus and the bacteria and viruses of millions of people and you don't have a choice it's pretty pretty sobering thought anyway on to extended continued extended failures of the, of the u.s system uh, we've been talking about elon musk yet again and his uh, recent relatively ridiculous behaviors and it, it musk has been known for having quite the libertarian streak he doesn't really like being told what to do but the latest sort of behaviors i mean he's been screaming for to to free america and open america up he didn't really believe coronavirus is a is a massive issue it would appear uh, and he's decided pretty much unilaterally that he was going to de- uh, he was going to reopen his factory in northern california um against the the local county's orders and the whole thing is a bit strange because it would appear that there'd already been a plan agreed between himself or, or tesla and the the local authorities to allow him to open in some degree but he still decided to create a tweet storm around it which one has to assume is only pr related i mean even trump tweeted something in favor of musk which is uh, quite 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 a bizarre situation and posturing him for i'm not quite sure what but it's it, it bringing him some sympathy from uh, quarters he might not have had before you've got to feel for tesla's internal legal counsel on this haven't you just imagine having to deal with the ceo <laughs> tweeting these things like one of the agreements with the so the securities and exchange commission the regulatory body in the states that effectively try and make sure that people have responsible um that people behave financially responsibly in a number of ways um find musk millions of dollars for tweeting um, I'm going to take Tesla private at some stock price I can't remember and yeah one of the agreements of that was that they were supposed to have a legal counsel review all of his tweets before he could actually send them out <laughs> you really don't get the sense that that's happening you can just imagine one one internal lawyer just really pulling their hair out it's like no Elon stop it stop saying what you're saying <laughs> You can you can imagine somewhere in the background there's you know they keep changing the password to his Twitter account but you know you're dealing with Elon Musk he's worked out how to he's worked out how to crack the password for his own Twitter account. It's uh... I mean the, I mean to his, to his credit the ventilators that he sent or at least those of them that that worked that he sent to a number of hospitals were were really helpful. Um, there might have been a failure of communication on the on the government side there because you know there was, it wasn't clear whether or not they'd actually arrived in various places but. Um, there was there was definitely yeah. a solid effort made there. Uh, I'm not, you know, the the propensity to to feel like one can propound meaningfully, definitely some ir- irony in me saying that on something which one knows absolutely nothing about is pretty real with someone like Elon Musk. Like the tweets about HCQ, this hydrochloxy, what sorry, whatever the the hydrochloxy. The, the, mala- the malaria medicine that, malaria that, that, that <laughs> Trump suggested would work against hydroxychloroquine. Thank you. That that Trump suggested would work as a treatment against this um, novel coronavirus. Novel being the operative word there, and Musk got right on that train and was tweeting about how it's potentially really helpful and yada yada yada. Like pre any sensible scientific basis for thinking this, 
And, you know, then the conversation turns into, uh, yeah, but it might have some negative, some deleterious effect on your heart if you take it when you don't need to. And I'm just kind of sat there reading this, like, it, and also the fact that there are loads of people in the developing world who actually need this for their malaria. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And you're just going to drag the supply away. I mean, this is, um, this is, again, we didn't write about it in the blog this week, but it's well worth something to, to go and have a look at was, um, was Rick Bright this week testifying, um, basically against some of the behaviors of, um, BARDA, which is basically a, a drug development and vaccine research part of the the US government, uh, which he'd been ousted from. And it was interesting because one of the questions there was that one of the senators was posing to him was, yeah, but you've got this drug which you think might work a bit, so wouldn't you test it on people? And it, uh, and it was he was sort of battling this level of scientific lack of understanding that no, it, it doesn't matter you know how bad the emergency is, you can't just take a drug that you doesn't know you don't know works for something and just try it that's not necessarily better than nothing it's and it yeah it's um that's an interesting one to watch out for uh, what will come out of that it was infuriating to watch some of the questions that were being asked right onto onto the uk yeah yeah so we there's a there's a bit of an ongoing theme in the last few weeks where we talk about the uh some of the players that have been involved in our response to uh the coronavirus crisis and by players i mean private sector uh players which to be fair you would be mad in this situation not to drag in some private sector help if you need it you know this is it, it it's not for us to say okay we're sat there we need a job doing there's a bunch of people that you that could do that job don't use them that that's not the point we're making but some of the people that we seem to be awarding contracts worth millions and millions of pounds to are the exact same people who you just wouldn't do it to so for example um deloitte uh, deloitte have been handed responsibility for centralized procurement for ppe um ventilators uh, and a whole other bu- bunch of stuff there's a there's a list of items which they have just taken off individual NHS trusts. So even purchasing agreements that were in the works currently that were that you know were partway through being done have just been seized from those individual trusts and totally centralized. Okay, now you can see some of the sense that might be behind that. But this is Deloitte who have been losing test results from the testing centres, who have left places in such a state that, you know, last week we wrote about NHS Trust telling their doctors not to go to the testing centres because they're not safe. This is, and they're, they're an accountancy company. And they've been given responsibility for that. They've been res- uh, given responsibility for running the Lighthouse Labs, the new specialist labs that have been set up to do um, increased testing. It's shocking. Then you've got KPMG, um, KPMG who were convicted in the US of stealing information regarding upcoming audits for their clients in order to doctor their paperwork better KPMG we were awarded the contract to set up our emergency nightingale hospitals you've got Capita uh, who historically had taken so long to vet disability benefit candidates that people were dying before they ever got the money are the people we now have vetting nhs staff who are trying to return to work it's it's absolutely baffling we're handing responsibility to companies that have proved themselves time and time again to be incompetent and we've been awarding them with through a special process which means there's virtually no oversight whatsoever on the contracts that's awarded to them it's fascinating. I really liked your description of Capita in the newsletter this week. Well, an outsourcing firm of dubious definition. 
What, and what do you <laughs> do again? Like, try, try and put a finger on what they do. It's quite hard. No, it's like, they definitely do things. And, I mean, to a large extent, I think these big accounting and consulting firms often just serve as a, a legal conduit, really. It's like, oh, yeah, we're not firing you. The government's not firing you. It's these people. Or whatever, whatever the job yeah. is, it's just a transfer of responsibility. It's just bureaucracy in its purest form. But just packaged up with a little bit of value added on the top uh, or a large bit of value added on the top and that's why you how you cream your profit up and it doesn't matter how repeatedly incompetent you show yourself to be there'll still be government contracts handed out i mean capital the people who are responsible for hiring our contact con contact tracers uh and right so they've been hired to do that the capital are the same people who are in who are in um trouble at the moment with the government for having completely failed to recruit people to the armed forces as they were paid to do it's, it's you know, you're just repeating the same mistakes over and over again. It's fascinating. And, of course, all of this came down to uh, our, our national pandemic PPE stockpile, which it's come out was being managed by a company called Movianto, which is uh, or was a subsidiary of a U.S. healthcare company, but actually got sold last month to a French company. Um, and they were keeping our pandemic stockpile in a, uh, a, a 1950s brick warehouse uh, in Liverpool, which had no mains power and was filled with asbestos. And although it was since moved to a modern warehouse, it was in such a state when the army turned up to take the logistics that they had to basically strip the place down and start again because everything was so disordered. Does anyone remember the before time with Theresa May talking about... Who? Yeah, right? The <laughs> one, of, one of Britain's elected prime ministers or something. I don't know. Um... And she was. There was this conversation about running through fields of wheat, and there was a discussion about magic money trees, and yeah, it all seems, all seems like a time gone by. It seems like a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. But we have been, we've been harvesting the magic money tree pretty hard in the UK the last few weeks. And 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 to be fair, it would seem to have been a good idea. Um, and this is a this is an interesting thing. I mean. If you look at the pattern of austerity that the UK uh, carried out following the, the great financial crisis in, in 2008, um, the UK decided to go against the grain, really, in terms of drawing out austerity. So, i.e., it stopped spending on anything. It, it, you know, it withdrew funding from the NHS and uh, mental health care, libraries, education, you know, across the board of cuts. And it would appear that compared to other countries, this massively hurt our recovery process and you know this is something that we've got to be very careful of in the coming months uh, in the uk that we don't get onto an obsession with reducing the deficit because if we if we what we're doing right now is spending 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 which is great that's that's fantastic but it's very scary thought that in a few months it could turn around to being a sort of a popular statement to try and reduce that spending and trying to claw back what we've what we've spent and that that massive uh, debt to gdp ratio and it's really important we don't and it's something we, we've talked a little bit about because um there's there's a couple of senior um people from the world of, of academic economics uh, coming along and saying look you've got to be really careful forget forget how much we're spending don't worry about it just just spend it because otherwise we're not going to have an economy to come back with and there's a couple of great articles we've linked to this week which are really worth reading and i mean making sure we're spending that money in the right place as well right so like taking yeah. the conversation back to the to the US for a moment, they've spent something in excess of $6 trillion equivalent in bailing everybody out. And okay, so who have they actually been bailing out? And, you know, okay, every US citizen, and I mean, 
myself as well as a permanent resident, I was amazed. I got a signed letter from Donald Trump with a $1,200 deposit to my bank, which I'm stunned by. I've never expected the US government to give me money in my entire life. And I now have a, a, a signed letter from Donald Trump, which I'm embarrassingly tempted to frame because it's so absurd. But... <laughs> <laughs> But the, the amount of money that they put into this, they could have given every American, I'm trying to remember the, the figure, it was, it was something like two and a half thousand dollars monthly for a year. Like, yeah. It, it, yeah. and trickle up economics works. Trickle down economics doesn't. If you give everyone the money to spend, local businesses survive, things keep ticking over. The world goes. The world people goes. can eat. People can eat. People can actually buy food, and they're not, yeah. not pressured. Yeah, of course, that's the obvious thing, isn't it? They're not, they're not pressured into going back <laughs> into work before it's safe to do so. You can. Act- I mean, this is where this is where the theory of trickle down economics really falls apart. Because even if even if trickle down economics works, right? Even if you could say, yeah, that works fine, you've still got to wait for the trickle, right? So <laughs> you've got to, you put something into the top, and the idea is, you know, it filters down, and then it finds its way way to the people who need it, but. What if the people who need it have already died because they can't eat? Because you know what? What are we up to now? Unemployed in the US? Is it like over thirty? Closing mi- in on twenty percent. Over thirty million yeah. people. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's insane. Like, how how can the amount of the amount of people, the general experience, the quality of life of individuals, and their lack of an ability to meaningfully participate in their communities and society at large, or in any form of business, how is that so so? fundamentally decoupled, apparently, from the performance of the stock market. Why did so much of that stimulus package end up going to, and look like it's going to go to companies like Boeing, and companies that spent up to 90% of their available cash per year on buying back stock to make their shareholders see a profit, because that's a, representing an increased demand, and artific- highly artificial, and amazed it's legal demand on their, on their stock. I mean, this is where, to be fair, the UK seem to have got part of their response right in that, you know, the furloughing scheme by supporting people's wages directly, making sure people don't see that drop, that immediate harsh drop from not having work is absolutely crucial because it's kept spending going. Yes, retail spending has fallen off a cliff, but imagine if everybody had been made unemployed a month and a half ago but on the furlough scheme, if we had another 8 million people completely out of the economy, not spending money. That would be such an unbelievable burden to try and pick up, you know. And the 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 health results from that, um, the deprivation, the the effects that are going to be having on children anyway. But imagine if those if you know all those parents were out of work would be just absolutely unbelievable. And to be to be fair, we've got to say, okay, Rishi Sunak and this current government have got that absolutely right in the UK. And I'll put my hands up and say I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to get. <laughs> But this this government of absolute incompetence, I'm not going to go, you know, so far as to keep giving them a compliment. Um, I didn't think that they'd get that that right, but they have. Um, um, but yeah. And then just on another positive thing, because I've, I've done a lot of bitching on this podcast. Um, the, the, <laughs> so one fantastic thing that the UK government's done as well recently is to start offering support for self-employed people. I mean, yeah. presumably they've just been, freelancers have just been scrappy enough to subsist for the past few months <laughs> or <laughs> just hole up in some warehouse somewhere. Like, I don't know, because <laughs> it's, it's taken them a while. But as of today, recording this on Monday the 16th, they've finally opened grants for for self-employed people. And they're, it, it appears like they're going to be distributing them. So cautiously, yeah. bravo. Well, to be fair, they, I mean, and they, I've, I've as I say, you know, complimenting again in terms of the retail and hospitality grant for those of us who got shops, you know, that money 
came through really quick, uh, impressively quick. The cynics of, uh, you know, amongst us, ourselves included, were sitting here a couple of months ago and saying, yeah, it'll take months, we'll never have that, we'll go bust before we have those. And uh, no, they've, they've done it, they've processed it, they've done really, really well. Um, going back to things we haven't processed particularly well, um, it's, it's the B word again. Uh, Brexit seems to have pretty much disappeared from what we're talking about, despite the fact we're a, a month and a half off or is it the 1st of June or was it the 31st of June or the 1st of July where everything I don't know I've stopped thinking about it because it's too painful either way it looks like we're going to have an entirely catastrophic no deal Brexit to look forward to as we might be tailing off towards the end of this pandemic yay go us um, but um, yeah it was revealed this week that uh, we are in fact going to have a border between the mainland UK and Northern Ireland which is something that which was repeatedly promised um, by Boris Johnson and the Conservatives that wouldn't happen and of course everybody knew it would happen but they lied and lied and lied and lied and they've uh, revealed in private that there is going to be customs check on goods going between England, Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland which will mean a hard border between the two uh, I mean it's hard to imagine that this won't result in the breakup of the Union to be quite honest because this is going to mean that effectively Northern Ireland is aligned with the rest of the EU including Ireland and misaligned with the rest of the UK. I mean, how that's functionally going to work, I have absolutely no idea. It just doesn't seem tenable. And it looks like the figure we've got quoted here is something like 50,000 people are being employed to generally deal with the post-Brexit administrative nightmare. Yeah. Um, that's just customs paperwork. 50,000 people are going to be employed just to deal with the customs paperwork. Oh. So that's compared to the 55,000 total who work for the EU. So we've really won there. We've really beat the bureaucracy. That was worth doing, wasn't it? And, and meanwhile, there's a, a fresh fruit and veg shortage in the UK because people can't be bothered to go and actually pick them. So the, yep. ra- the irony here, stop, stop. It's, it's... let's invent a problem, spend rapidly advanced, just, ah, I can't even articulate it. Go it's, pick it's, the fucking it's, fruit and vegetables. It's... It's absolutely infuriating. A big fruit and contact trace. Like, seriously. It's, we, oh, it's baffling. It's absolutely baffling. Um, the, the positive uh, out of all of this is we actually have an opposition now in the UK. We've yes. got Woohoo! Um, uh, who, who, for those who don't know, was the, uh, the director of public prosecutions. So he's a really experienced barrister. You know, he's... He, has the attitude of a lawyer in that he will read something and he will pull it apart and he will be absolutely ruthless in the way he examines things without being aggressive, without yelling at people, without resorting to sound bites. And he's doing exactly that. And, you know, there was a lot of hype around him and people saying, ah, well, he won't be that good once he actually gets in. But what he's been doing so far is this cool, calm, collected dissection of everything that Boris Johnson is saying in parliament and it's fantastic he keeps calling him out on lying you know and he keeps catching all the inconsistencies and he's making johnson in particular look like a bloody idiot i mean he really is when you see him face up to some of the questions despite all of his bluster he can't respond he's totally outgunned and you know it's fantastic. I, I admittedly you know you've got to you, you've got to pair that off so there's got to be constructive opposition at a time like this but that's what he appears to be doing. He appears to be striking the balance, and that's really positive. It's great. It's exactly what we needed. It's it's really a breath of fresh air, isn't it? It's this, okay, you said this, that, and the other last week. Here are the documents. Here's the reference. And, yeah, just we're going to at least expect a level of consistency from you. And if you say a statistic that you have no basis for in Parliament 
to the public, you're going to be held accountable for it. We're at least going to make, we're at least going to ask you to come back and say that you've got it wrong. I mean, the letter Starmer sent to Johnson is just brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So he, he sent he sent a letter relating to something which uh, basically Starmer had said, um, you said this on X date, and Boris Johnson immediately come back in Parliament and said, no, I never said that. And uh, of course, Johnson had said that, and uh, and Keir Starmer wrote a letter to Boris Johnson, um, basically giving him a little bit of a telling off and inviting him back to Parliament to come and correct himself, which is brilliant. And it's exactly the sort of accountability that hasn't been happening. You know, it's been far too easy for people to turn up and lie. Um, and this, there's, without being caught up on these things, without having people telling you you need to come back to Parliament to retract your statement and, and correct the record, people, you know, these, these politicians have just been getting away from it. And this is politicians on both sides of, of the Commons. You know, let's not be, let's be honest about this, that Labour and Lib Dems have arguably been just as bad, but the Conservatives are no, they're worse. Um, <laughs> Fact, <laughs> but, facts uh, are becoming real again. Facts are becoming tangible. There's a real, reality is exactly a thing. Real. Reality, real facts. But it's fascinating to see as well the right the writer wing pressure. I should say not you know not really hard right leaning press, but um, is absolutely fawning over Starmer. And uh, to quote the Telegraph or the Toriograph, as it's known informally in the UK, um, they wrote that Starmer took Boris Johnson apart like a Duplo set. <laughs> you can't get more complimentary, really. It's fantastic. It's a it's a breath of fresh air. It's good to see. Magic. Awesome. I think that's about it from us this week. Absolutely. Thank you very much for listening. And you can find us on all of the socials, medias and things like that, doing the twits. And the tweeters. I mean, I, I don't understand it at all, but Ali's very good. Follow us at WJH blog um, and, and get in contact with us. Let us know what you like and what you don't like. And, you know, have an argument with us. I'm up for that. I'll stay up all night and, and tweet some hatred at you. All, don't push me all, of, our, all, of, our, <laughs> all of our blog posts are still at whatjusthappened.news. And we encourage everyone to participate in the conversation. We've linked to dozens of really great articles this week. And, um, there's a there's always some stuff which we don't cover in the podcast in the newsletter and we'd we'd love to love to hear your feedback and thoughts it's all welcome and it's it's all a lot of fun so thank you for thank you for listening